I'm uh, I'm happy I have a new water bottle because I get to um, start loading it with new stickers. Um, <laughs> I actually got to use some of the stickers that you got me last uh, holiday season. Um, nice. Got, got this nice, uh, you know, ham sick one right there on the, you know, the, the part where everybody can see it while I'm drinking. It's on, for, <laughs> for on camera. I have it specifically right there. Well, Sticker placement is very important. I don't so much have it have the water bottle one, but on like the back of my laptop. Uh, it and I had like just mostly in this symmetrical setup, and then I got a really good Layla Khalid sticker when I was at the National March uh, for Palestine last month. Uh, nice. People just going around handing out dope stickers. <laughs> um, yeah, but now you know, I'm just I've... like, oh no! Now I have to get more stickers to balance out this new one. I have a terrible dilemma I have created for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've gone. Uh, I've I've gone to. Pennsylvania a couple times uh recently for specific like activities that I had to do and I have forgotten to bring the sticker the work stoppage stickers each time because sometimes Mm. all right so disclosure because this is probably going to make it into the cold open sometimes I do just give away the work stoppage stickers (laughs) to random people I'm talking to someone on the bus hey talking about labor because I can't not hey here's some stickers from this sick podcast that I know about I feel like it's like uh, it, this. This just makes me think of those like whenever you watch those shows, like kids uh, game shows and stuff on Nickelodeon back in the nineties and or early two thousands and stuff. And it would be like, here's the rules for entering unless you live in California. And so I feel like our podcast is like that with the stickers. And it's like, if you really want the stickers, you got to sign up for the Patreon unless you live in Michigan. Yeah. And can you, randomly find Lena. Don't do that, though. Don't stalk the host. Yeah, don't, to get be, stickers. don't be creepy. <laughs> but if you are in the area, jump in the Discord and be like, Oh, yo! I'm in Michigan. Who knows? Maybe there's use comradely things that could that could happen. But I also don't be fucking weird about it. <laughs> All right. Well, now that the cold open has kind of gone to a weird place, <laughs> <laughs> I no, I'm serious. I'm willing to hang out. But like, yeah. Anyway, let's just yeah, let's just get going. Stoppage, your favorite labor news program. I'm Lena. Uh, I'm Dan. We're doing this out of order this week. You may have noticed it's just the two of us. <laughs> yeah, John's feeling a little under the weather. Uh, and if you'd like to make sure that we have all of the resources necessary to maintain our health, you can become a patron at patreon.com uh, slash work stoppage because it's the only way that we get any funding for doing this and we really appreciate it. Make sure to jump in the Discord as I was just mentioning. If you want stickers, message us on Patreon when you do that. You also make sure, please make sure to imp- include a little address because uh, if we don't have an address, we can't send them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then also, please write us a review somewhere. It makes it so much easier for people to find the, the show. And I mean, like, there's a bunch of different uh, websites out there that do podcast reviews views just like write them anywhere and when i say anywhere i don't mean like you know carve it into a park bench as we've joked but there are plenty of places that actually are podcast review locations that we would really appreciate five stars from yeah instead of of the carving it into a park bench 
if you live in one of the few areas of the country that does still get snow, use a snowblower to put workstoppagepod.com and then take a picture with a drone. This is a very complicated <laughs> and Damn. difficult way to spread the word about the podcast, but I believe you, in our listeners. You made me think of things like a corn maze. It's like, you know, have a, a field of corn and, may, and like lay it lay down the corn so that it says work stoppage in the field and then do the drone thing. That would Having be very to like cool. plan this like months in advance. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's dedication. That's right. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, as you can tell, uh, the two of us very used to doing the intro that we have e- like ever done. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so for our to get into the stories for our first story this week, we want to follow up kind of, I think, probably to just put a cap on this year's epic struggle of nearly 200,000 workers in the film and TV industry where we you know we we finally had the the conclusion of the sag after strike that just finished a couple of weeks ago uh, we've been discussing the various provisions that they won uh in this contract and now we have seen the results of the voting on the contract by the actual membership and so announced this past Tuesday, December 5th, 78% of the members of sag after voted in favor of the new deal which uh, you know, it's not a 98% ratification, but uh, to compare it to some recent contracts, it is actually a slightly higher percentage of workers than voted in favor of the last two contracts, which both passed by uh, similar numbers, but like 70, I think 71 and 74%, uh, whereas this one a little bit higher at 78%. Yeah, I think it might reflect some of the more engagement that was mm-hmm. seen. I mean, I, I guess maybe I don't remember the other strikes as well, but this one seemed to be pretty uh, big in regards to the engagement and also the publicity following like kind of the upsurge in labor that we've been seeing. And I mean, also just the, the fact that they're fighting for those AI protections and uh, many of the other things and getting a pretty good contract. I imagine that that led to some of the increased support. Well, yeah, and I mean, obviously, since there was actually a strike this time as opposed to the previous contracts, that 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 does, I mean, it does build engagement, but I believe, I, I didn't put this in the notes, but I actually believe the actual percentage of participation was only about like 38%, I think, the membership. Now, granted, sag is a very big union. This is like 170,000 actors, and so like 40% of that is still like almost 100,000 people, so... Uh, it's, 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 it's a lot of people, uh, voting, but, um, not, you know, necessarily like a hundred percent, but I mean, the, uh, to your point, you know, about the AI protections, that's actually, you know, one of the areas that was, there was still quite a lot of debate. I, I did see folks online talking about that, you know, there, there are good things about the AI protections, but some folks had concerns that it, maybe it didn't have enough protection, especially for like background actors, um, and I, I know there was also questions about, you know, protections for voice actors and whether there was enough for, for those sorts of folks in here. Uh, and I know that there's, you know, the, the possibility in the short term that there may be another strike in the, for voice actors in the video game industry. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be covering that in the near future. But, you know, despite those concerns, which clearly did, you know, lead to some folks voting no, uh, obviously, you know, the the, uh, the rest of the wins in the contract, including the protections against AI, but also the fact that it's got a billion dollars in, in additional compensation, one for workers, uh, a- as well as, you know, increases in benefits, 
uh, and you know the the new residuals one for streaming services that those wins were enough uh, uh, after the you know giant. 118 day long strike to uh to get the the membership to vote yes so yeah and i think that it, the ai protections will also you know hinge a little bit on how much the workers themselves are willing to enforce the contract because if they mm-hmm. are more stringent about it i think the studios could be a little bit more hesitant to push the envelope on certain occasions because that's the case that we see fairly often with like you know contracts is the more that it's in forest the less that the management is willing to try to like you know nitpick around the edges and not to say that they won't anyway but you know they're if they feel like there's going to be pushback on something they might just forego that in the first place yeah, well, and I mean, I get the concerns that people have about, you know, AI. Because, look, of course, we know that the studios, e- e- even with the, the protections, you know, the minute they go back to shooting, they're going to be trying to, put, to pull as much bullshit as they can to eat away at the edges and try and get away with, do, like, doing a bunch of bullshit. But it, this is one of those things that's always just challenging. You know, when you're a union operating under a capitalist system, like, no contract that you get is going to give you total, complete control over the deployment of new technologies that would require the ownership of the means of production, which is, of course, uh, a little beyond just the what trade unionism is trying to do to what revolutionary politics are trying to do. But so ultimately, you know, these these deals under capitalism are always going to be basically like a temporary truce uh, between the workers and the bosses. And so there is one of those aspects that I think, you know, compares to containerization in a favorable way because a lot like when we did the ILA series you know the 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 trade-off there with the ILA and and the shippers was first to try and be like no you can't have containers at all we're going to block the existence of this but then very rapidly realizing that that would not work and instead just saying okay you can do everything you can scrap jobs you just have to give everybody a raise whereas in this one it's been like you know if you like you have to get consent to do use AI for any of these actors. You can't just copy paste that from one movie into another. And critically, if you use these tools in a way that reduces the amount of uh, like time and pay you would be giving a worker, you still have to give them that pay differential. So they they included things to discourage, you know, reducing the number of hours of uh, that workers were going to get paid for, which is again is something that you know could have been done by the ILA with containerization to say, okay, containerization, we can't stop it from happening, and it's going to cut the amount of labor we have to do. Okay, fine. So you have to pay people uh, 40 hours worth of compensation for 20 hours worth of work if you're going to cut all their hours because fuck you, we're not going to let you use to let technology destroy the industry. And so time will tell if these protections are enough or if they need to be changed, you know, and updated and reinforced in the next contract. But I think at least, you know, the attempt using these provisions to prevent, you know, the destruction of the industry, I think is clearly there. Yeah, and I think that that's a super important point. And also kind of the the growth of the union movement and learning from that history of failures in regards to like the containerization fight. I, I think that mm-hmm. this really does give us more of a precedent of what to do in cases of you know, that sort of automation of work and and to really focus on making sure that, you know, when there is a reduction in in um in intensification say there's like or i guess the opposite of intensification that that is actually a benefit for the workers and not just for the owning class 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, ultimately, it's not that autom- automation is a bad thing. It's that automation should be directed to making everyone's life better, not making some asshole richer. Exactly. So, and just to, to close this out, we do have a quote, you know, as, as part of a statement on the ratification of the contract from SAG after President Fran Drescher, who said, quote, I'm proud of our SAG after membership. They struck for 118 days to grant the TV theatrical negotiating committee the necessary leverage to secure over $1 billion in gains, along with the union's first ever protections around AI technology. Now they've locked in the gains by ratifying the contract. SAG after members have remained incredibly engaged throughout the pr- this process, and I know they'll continue their advocacy throughout our next negotiation cycle. This is a golden age for SAG after, and our union has never been more powerful. End quote. And I, I mean, I love that optimism, and I mean, I definitely we saw a lot of that power in the, on the on the strike line. I mean, that's mm-hmm. it was really really impressive, and I mean, we look forward to them building a stronger union, even more so in the future. But mm-hmm. uh, to move to our next story, we can talk about uh, young workers in the National Institute of Health who are the latest in the wave of workers in academia to add another huge bargaining unit to the labor movement. Woo. Fellows at the Institute, mostly postdoctoral workers and recent graduates, filed for a union back in June. And finally this week, they had the chance to really make their voices heard. The results were, you know, honestly, kind of as expected, incredibly overwhelming with a vote of 1,601 to 36, which is a 98% in favor of organizing with the UAW, which fucking rocks. Yeah, like when you have a, a, a voting pool of that many people, this is like about as close to unanimous as you're ever going to get. Oh, yeah. And and truly like representative of so many other of the academic uh, struggles that have been happening lately. But, I mean, previously we had discussed this union effort back on episode 169 in August when the NIH made its argument that the 5,000-member bargaining unit should not exist because they claimed that the fellows were not workers and, in fact, trainees. Which, Get it? I'm sorry, but when you're bullshit. training someone in a job, are they not a worker? Do you just, like, th- I know that at one point in history people did have to, like, either pay for training or they had reduced pay while training and then that was deemed illegal in many cases and honestly it's just bullshit the idea that people in training are not workers well and also it's funny because it's like they're basically making the same argument talking about people who just got their doctorates and are actively doing scientific research for the National Institutes of Health, they're making the same argument that they're not workers that the NCAA uses about student athletes. That, yeah. oh, they're being trained? They're receiving training. And so they're not actually a worker. It's just like, they're doing labor for you that you are benefiting from. So I don't care if they're also doing training. That doesn't change the employer-employee, worker-boss relationship. That's still there. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, especially, I mean, as these workers themselves are, like, basically going, not like you said, doing the work right there on the spot because, you know, you have to do the work to get the experience and the training. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, they're very likely to, stay in the nih or other very similar systems so i mean you're literally training people to be the full-time the the professional staff at the same time which means that is part of your business well and the other thing though that i think is funny that i i think and now look this would require a little more knowledge of the 
inner workings of the bureaucracy within the National Institutes of Health, and I certainly have. But the the framing around this also makes me think of, you know, another example that we, we would, I think you can compare these workers to pretty closely is the way like adjunct professors are often dealt with in other, I mean, I guess the NIH isn't technically academia, but it's so parallel to it. I think there's a lot of similarities there because one of the things that you saw so much in the argument against paying adjuncts more, against giving them more benefits, was really this tacit admission that they're like, well, yeah, but like, we're never going to give these people tenure positions. Like, we're never going to make them full-time hires. And we just want to profit from their labor while they're, like, fresh out of college and don't really quite understand, like, necessarily the value of their work, as if, you know, again, infantilizing the people that they're arguing don't deserve a union. But, again, I think that's another thing here is is the argument is almost, like, implicit that they're like, oh, if these were longtime employees, they could unionize. But because they're postdocs, no, they can't. Which is, again, a, a weird, infantilizing way to look at this. But, you know. Yeah, but I mean, like, thankfully, that really didn't fly with the NLRB. And because of the public pressure, uh, I mean, the NIH was forced to drop their formal objection. And now workers have shown how unanimous their de- desire for a union is with that, again, 98% vote in favor. Mm-hmm. And this new bargaining unit is the largest new union of federal employees in 12 years and the first ever unionized fellows at a federal research agency. The fellows represent about 10% of the NIH workforce, which, I mean, is huge, bringing them right up to basically the uh, just above the national average of unions in general, really yeah. trying to make that representation uh, material in the NIH itself. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, we talked about this back when we first, uh, discussed this campaign. While we, you know, it's great that these workers unionize, it's going to improve their conditions. We do just need to highlight, you know, the way that federal labor law really, really restricts, uh, the range of topics that these workers can bargain over and, and also the range of tactics that they can use in their bargaining. Because like, uh, they're ban- they're banned legally from striking and slowdowns, really withholding their labor collectively in any way, and are largely limited in w- how they can bargain over their conditions to lobbying legislatures to basically increase the allocation of money for the NIH in order to raise salaries. But despite that, despite the fact that you know we have an incredibly anti-worker. Uh, labor system, uh, labor law system, especially for public workers. Yeah. Um, well, and I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you too much, but you, we've talked about this in the recent Patreon series of the contradictions, am- um, like amongst the state workers and the state, being even more heightened in certain cases than those of against you know the the worker and the boss in a in a more in a directly capitalist industry or or business. And I think that this itself highlights that very clearly. Yeah, well, and it's it's uh, it's also but it's it's also odd because you know you're not you don't have the d- direct exploitation angle. It's you have almost a like uh, bureaucratism for its own sake, like uh, uh, rather than the the direct you know I make your conditions worse and pay you less so that I can me the boss can personally profit from it because it's not like the administrators at the NIH are like pocketing the money that's not going to. Uh, 
these workers. Although, again, when we see the way that, uh, you know, faculties and other sorts of, in these, again, parallel academic institutions devote more and more of their funding to administrative salaries and less and less of their funding to professors, you get this less direct exploitation, but almost like parasitic overcrowding effect where you are like pushing out the people actually producing the product of the, the intellectual product of the, of this institution and adding just this layer of largely useless managerial administrative staff. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the actual like good points of, uh, uh, David Graeber's bullshit jobs book, uh, you know, basically people, you know, being put into the, these administrative positions for totally unnecessary reasons, just mm-hmm. simply to, for the excuse of having more people there. Yeah, absolutely. But but again, like despite all the restrictions of federal labor law, having a union will still make a big difference because like, look, if these workers are individually trying to lobby their individual senators to spend more money on the NIH, there's absolutely no way those yeah, people would be listened to. Uh, and now, of course, it's all it's still a challenge for even a union with a collective voice to get legislators to do anything actually good. But it's possible. They actually it, it gives the workers a lot more leverage, a, a lot more of a voice, and so uh, you know this will even if even within the constrained box that this union is put into, will still make a big difference on what these workers can can lobby for. Yeah, and I mean now the fellow now the fellows will elect a bargaining committee to col- and collectively decide on what issues to press with the administration, and you know bringing whatever to the legislators that they decide. In addition to higher stipends, fellows plan to push for improved benefits and long-term appointments for international workers, many of whom are actually only given one-year positions, which after that they're like forced to return home. Uh, which I mean that's ridiculous i mean when it comes to these these medical students i mean having people actually like there for long term is just better for outcomes in general but i mean that's that's a separate point workers were also hoping that their win will help other similar research workers at other facilities or other agencies so basically you know encouraging other people to organize and I mean, Rosa Laffer Souza, a neuroscience fellow, uh, told Nature, quote, any wins that we make will improve the working conditions for researchers across the country, end quote. And I think that that consciousness right there shows exactly why they won. Because mm-hmm. if you truly know how a union benefits all of the people in your industry and generally, you know, in communities that these industries involve are involved in and other sorts of, uh, you know, downstream effects of this collective struggle then you will win because you're just like i'm not just fighting for me sure i'm fighting for me and i'm gonna get something better but also i'm fighting for so many other people well yeah and i think it's also a a it underlines how important the sorts of big militant victories that we saw like the UAW win and the stand-up strike are because, you know, we saw the cascading impacts on auto workers already. But, you know, it's not as if only auto workers saw the UAW strike and are like, oh, this is great. This look, imagine what this could do for me. Like that's every like everybody can see that and be like, hey, why, why, why not me? <laughs> and so I think, yeah, I think we're going to see see more of this. But I mean, sp- speaking of like examples of people doing you know extended solidarity outside their own workplace and hoping uh, look, that people see this sort of thing 
Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's check in on how things are going in Elon Musk's war against, well, now Scandinavia. Um, because, you know, we've been following for the last couple of weeks the strike by workers in Sweden, uh, just started by just 150 mechanics for Tesla asking for a collective bargaining agreement like 90% of the rest of the workers in Sweden. Um, and then, you know, Musk's refusal to do that, just this blanket ideological war against ever having a collective bargaining agreement no matter what, we saw this massive expansion of a sympathy strike by all of Sweden's unions. You have dock workers getting involved, postal workers getting involved. And and so in response to this, rather than just taking the simple logical move of being like, well, 90% of the other workers in Sweden are unionized. So uh, I'm probably not going to be able to get around this. Why don't I just sign a collective bargaining agreement with them? That's not going to, you know, mean that the, the workers at the Fremont factory are immediately going to all decide to unionize. I mean, because frankly, if anything was going to make them do that, it would have been, again, seeing the victory in the UAW strike, which is why there's now an organizing committee at the Fremont factory. But anyways, right. <laughs> again, it's a, it, to, I'm just underlining that it's like this continued opposition is like not even smart from the capitalist angle. It's a purely ideological thing that is undercutting Tesla's business in Sweden. And now, now the big story this week is potentially all of Northern Europe. I mean, I feel like this is very Elon Musk's like intransigent. I'm always right and right. always oh, yeah, yeah. to his detriment because he is, ba- I mean, I'm going to just say always wrong. Well, yeah, because that's the thing is like people will talk about like, oh, he did this 5D chess buying buying Twitter because even if it doesn't succeed, he's like destroyed this great political space for the left. I'm like, first off, I don't know that Twitter really is the great political space for the left that some people think. Uh, But also he lost like $50 billion in investment on that. So I think the idea that it's like, yeah, he's still rich. He's still fine. But the idea that like, oh, this was some brilliant move. uh, I think you're giving him way too much credit. But and and I think that's also demonstrated again by the story this week where not only has he begun losing in court because a Swedish appeals court overturned an initial injunction which would have forced the government to directly provide license plates to Tesla where the court ruled that this the that initial order was not justified and the refusal by postal workers to deliver the plates was consistent with Swedish labor practices. So he's losing in court already. Also, also the idea that it's labor practices and not directly like labor law just like does show the power of workers organizing Mm -hmm. because if you set the precedent that, no, this is just how things work here and that workers are allowed to fight back in this way, the system doesn't really – I mean if there's enough power, doesn't really want to go like, "Uh, I'm sorry, but no, the law, this or that. I mean – I mean, and maybe this is just more of a consequence of the social democracy. But like I also think that it's really just a – really a consequence of the mass amount of workers who are unionized in this country. Well, right. And so now that in addition to seeing, you know, all these – workers in other Swedish industries joining the the blockade against Tesla. Well, now, because of Musk's continued intransigence and his attempts to use the legal system to attack the the uh, the system, like the, the whole labor movement in Sweden, now workers from other countries are also joining the blockade. Uh, this week, in response to the possibility that Tesla might try to divert its shipments from Swedish ports, where they're being blockaded, to Denmark and then uh, trucking them into Sweden. Uh, 
Uh, well, the Danish unions got out ahead of that and have, have now said they're the largest transport union there, 3F, announced that they will join the sympathy strike saying, uh, yeah, if you try and do that, we're just not going to move the, I, those cars. I love a sympathy strike. Like, it's they're just so good. such a powerful <laughs> statement. And I mean, just, uh, I mean, I hope that this sort of thing really does spread because I see so much of this that I would love for people here to see in our labor movement. I mean, at least getting like, you know, big and like very, very strong, like uh, not being, not crossing picket lines in your contracts. But also, I mean, uh, those sympathy strikes are illegal. If it's in a contract, I mean, the the company does have to kind of get uh does kind of have to respect that. Well, I mean, this shows also why uh, sympathy strikes are one of the first things that you know was explicitly banned as a strike tactic in the U.S. because of how effective they are. Uh, and you know, so on joining the strike, uh, I'm going to say it's probably Jan Viladsen, uh, head of uh, head of 3F, said, "quote." Just like companies, the trade union movement is global in the fight to protect workers. With the sympathy strike, we are now stepping in to put further pressure on Tesla, end quote. And so all Danish dock workers and truck drivers will now refuse to transport any Teslas to Sweden. Um, Hell yeah. And, and in addition to that, this past Wednesday on December 6th, Norwegian workers also joined the call to help out these workers in Sweden as well. Norway's largest private sector union, the Fellesforbundet, I don't know how to pronounce that, but that's my best attempt, uh, uh, announced starting on December 20th that if Tesla is still doing this bullshit, uh, that they will block all Tesla shipments as well. So, uh, you know, I have, have Tesla and Elon Musk at war, not only with the entire Swedish labor movement, but the entire Scandinavian labor movement as well. So yeah. we'll, we'll see how that works out for them. And it's an interesting thing to put a like a ticking clock on that one, the December twentieth, mm -hmm. you know, because like I'm sure that like if you just instituted the blockade immediately, that would also put pressure. But also the idea that like you're having these ratcheting up effects might be putting a even a little bit more pressure on in certain in a certain way. You know, it's not always uh, just the the kind of like straightforward tactic. Although, you know, maybe maybe I'm being naive about this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure what precisely the motivation is behind the delay. I think largely it's it's like to make this like to start with a warning to like not just jump immediately into the strike. I, although I think that would also be an effective move. But either way, I I, I mean. <laughs> I think Musk is just going to have to swallow his pride at this point. Like they're not like the workers aren't going to give up. Like <laughs> they're winning the strike. So like, unless he yeah. wants to just pull out of Sweden, which he could do that. But I mean, that would be an even stupider move. So, but who knows? This guy's a fucking idiot. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so conflicted in this story because in a certain sense, I just want to see more and more of these unions like come together in solidarity just to say fuck elon musk but also i want those workers to have the collective bargaining agreement right. that they want so yeah so so we'll see what happens but uh you know keeping with the uh global perspective here for a minute i did want to do a, a brief update before we get into some of our news stories this week on on the way that workers around the world are responding to the genocide in palestine 
uh, where more and more workers are finally, or more and more unions specifically as organizations, because the individual workers have already been been speaking out on this for since it started. Mm-hmm. But more and more, you know, big unions are, are are speaking out about this as organizations. And so, after the UAW became the largest union to officially demand a ceasefire last week. This week, uh, UAW Local 2865 at UC Davis voted to explicitly endorse BDS. And this is in line with the National Union initiating discussions like at the national level to evaluate uh, how they can, can move on divestment as the entire union. So not only are we now getting the important but somewhat symbolic call for a ceasefire, you also have the union not only doing that, but the very important step of how can we materially participate in the fight against apartheid. Yeah, um, I, it's super, super important. And I mean, we sh- really should be seeing more and more unions come out with these sorts of things, especially if they have already you know, made declarations for the ceasefire to make sure to be internally pressuring your, your um, national and international organizations to then actually really commit to that with the divestment from any sorts of uh, Israeli projects. Yeah, and, and and to that end, there is now a, a a new working group within the UAW, the UAW Labor for Palestine, which issued an open letter this week calling on the union to officially endorse BDS nationwide uh, in, in addition to the new policy that, that allows individual locals to endorse the movement. The working group calls on the leadership to terminate the UAW's ties with uh, Histadrut, uh, Israel's labor federation to divest from Israeli bonds and from the industries connected with the occupation, endorse the call on the government to end all USAID to Israel and to protect UAW members who engage in pro-Palestine speech and advocacy. And while all of these are very important, I absolutely love the like de-affiliating with Israel's labor federation to just straight up say we are with the Palestinians when it comes to labor issues. Well, I mean, yeah, because it's it's basically just saying we shouldn't be, have an alliance with a, a labor organization that says that labor a labor organization in another country like has no, you know that those workers are not people because that's essentially, because again, this is like the Israeli labor federation is not like it's, it's, it's an it, enforcer it, of apartheid. Yeah. It's like, it's completely complicit in the main maintenance of the Israeli colonial project. And so it absolutely makes sense to cut ties with it. It's the same thing. It's like under apartheid in South Africa, you're not going to be working with like a pro apartheid labor federation, which absolutely existed. It's just like, that's not going to, you're not going to do that. <laughs> that's fucked up. Um, uh, whereas after the end of apartheid, you absolutely work with the the you know labor federation that includes both white and black workers in the same way that in a free Palestine, it would be great to work with you know that labor federation with both Jewish and Muslim workers. Exactly. Uh, but uh, one other thing though that I did want to note, uh, I don't, I haven't seen if this is an official call from the organization itself, but uh, Becky Pringle, who is the president of the NEA, the National Education Association, uh, one of the two largest unions in the country alongside the AFT, uh, she had uh, just tweeted out a, a call for a permanent ceasefire on Friday, December 8th. So I haven't necessarily seen you know, an official statement from the NEA itself, uh, but the fact that the president is openly saying this would indicate, you know, that there likely is going to be an official endorsement from the NEA, which that would be huge. Again, the NEA is gigantic. It has 3 million members. It's like, like the AFT, one of the biggest unions, uh, in the country. And 
Unfortunately, I don't see the AFT joining this call anytime soon because Randy Weingarten is a very open Zionist, but uh, it would like this would be huge because again, like the NEA is like I believe ten times the size of the UAW, and so that would be a huge addition to the already like l growing number of unions uh, joining the baseline call for a, a permanent ceasefire. Yeah, and then. I mean, meanwhile, across the Atlantic, British workers have engaged in several actions to physically block the shipment of weapons that are used in the slaughter of Palestinians. On Thursday, December 7th, over a thousand trade unionists blockaded multiple weapons plants. Organized through Workers for a Free Palestine, union members formed picket lines at plants producing components for fighter aircraft used by Israel. Workers blocked the factories in Glasgow, Burnmouth, Lancashire, and Brighton, with over 600 people taking place in the blockade at Burnmouth. So, I mean, it's great to see workers standing directly in the line of, of the production of these weapons that are used just for pure dehumanization of the Palestinian people. Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, I mean, even as, you know, the horrors continue, it's, it's good to see more folks joining and like, not just the call to end this, but actually like materially getting involved because like it's labor organizations are some of the real ways we can actually use real worker power to force change. I mean, we, in Belgium, the, the labor movement like forced their government to switch its stance on this. So like, yeah, uh, it, it, it absolutely is, is important and really glad to see this and, and help folks keep it up. Right. And there's been so many other actions. And I really want to encourage all of you, whether or not you're in a union, to keep looking for actions that you can mm -hmm. go out and support. Because it, this is not something that is slowing down. It is just a movement that is still building. And so you can be part of it. It's not... It's not a, uh, it's not going away currently, unfortunately, because, uh, and I, and I only say unfortunately because, uh, we, we really want the Palestinians to get the victory that they deserve, but to continue with our labor news, uh, we do have to, we're going to talk a little bit about Amazon and how they have just continued to flagrantly flaunt U.S. labor law by illegally mm -hmm. union busting. And, uh, I mean, but. In, this, in the face of this, workers have not stopped their organizing because efforts by workers at the company's KCVG Air Hub in northern Kentucky just outside of Cincinnati have been ramping up their response to the company's repression. As reported by Michael Sonato in The Guardian, workers at the Air Hub have been organizing for months around demands for childcare, better overtime, $30 an hour minimum, uh, minimum wage for the workers, and just so many other things. And in response, the company has been retaliating against pro-union workers with baseless write-ups and other discipline, which, I mean, is obviously a classic, but they really, uh, it's going to, we know we've talked so many times about how long it takes for these uh cases to make it through the NLRB and so this is why Amazon is not intimidated and will again like I said flaunt labor law in order yeah, to well, continue and, and their the, repression and like now this isn't related to this specific story but it's tied in like I mean on that same point you know we saw 
uh, Connor Spence, who was a prominent organizer uh, with the ALU at JFK 8, was just fired this week on a, on another. It's a, it's one of these same things. It's like, oh, well, they had all these write-ups. They have this all of this discipline. This, this is how we would treat any worker. It's just like, yeah, it's just you have you consistently make these ticky-tack bullshit write-ups specifically for pro-union workers or union organizers. It's a little suspicious that, like, Oh, it, it just turns out all the people we're firing for write-ups happen to be pro-union. Definitely a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even in places where, like, I mean, I guess we've gone over so many examples. I don't need to necessarily reiterate, but it's incredibly common. Mm-hmm. The 12 prominent union supporters were actually given recent final written warnings at the Air Hub in Kentucky, which is a prelude to their termination and in response, and this is directly in response to their organizing work. And despite these attacks, organizers say that over a thousand of the Hub's 4,000 workers have already signed union cards, which is a major, major victory so far, and we're really encouraging them in their organizing drive. But Yeah, no, I mean, that's like, that's that's a real achievement. I mean, like yeah it's it's only 25 percent of the workforce but it's 25 percent of the workforce it's a thousand people like and, and to to do that to be able to pull that off in in such a repressive environment where the company is just totally willing to just break the law constantly like that's a big achievement so and and also continuing to publicize the bullshit that amazon is doing i think you know that is going to clearly lead more workers to be like some people might get you know a bit afraid by it, but I think a lot of people are going to see that and be like, you know, it really is bullshit the way they treat us here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, worker organizer Marcio Rodriguez told The Guardian, quote, we have co-workers who are homeless and sleeping in the parking lot because inflation has gotten so high. They could pay us the $75 million Jeff Bezos spent on a support yacht. Each plane we push out there has over $100,000 in freight in it. So there's no reason the money isn't there. They just want to be greedy and keep it, end quote. And I mean, obviously, like looking at the money coming out, coming into Amazon is that is is just easy to see how the, none of that's really going to the workers. The idea that people are forced to sleep in their vehicles in such a, a vastly wealthy company. I mean, obviously yeah, like- anywhere, but I mean, in this particular example, it's especially egregious. It's just just absolutely absurd. I mean, I think we can all agree on a fair policy that if you own a support yacht, we're sending you into space on a one-way trip. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you can go, to go explore to space. Mars. Instead of just going into the upper atmosphere, you know, maybe we can get them all the way up there into real space. Yeah. It's just like, this is how we're going to get rid of all these stupid, uh, uh, what are they, the... This is how this is this is how we're gonna clean up uh, the 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 low Earth orbit. Get rid of all the Starlink satellites by just firing billionaires at them. <laughs> oh, that's a really good idea, Dan. You know, coming at us with the best work. And so, in response to the retaliation against organizers, workers have held several marches on the boss to demonstrate their unity and show managers that they cannot stop the union drive by trying to isolate a few leaders. Jordan Quinn, another worker at the KCVG Air Hub, said, quote, Despite all of Amazon's corporate speak and policy and their policies, they don't actually care about workers. What they put first is their profits and how much volume they're pushing out. 
and I think that it honestly shows that we can't trust them to make things better. This is why we have to get organized and fight. We're the only ones who have each other's backs in there, end quote. And that's fucking true. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right, Jordan. Uh, perfect analysis. And interestingly, uh, the Amazon workers at the KCVG airport, the, you know, the northern Kentucky just across the border from, from Cincinnati Airport, are not the only folks involved in a big labor effort there. This, the, the same week, uh, the Teamsters, who have a lot of workers at that same Kentucky Air Hub, and this is the thing, part of why you see like Air Hubs in places like uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Chicago, that's like the ideal location if you want to maximize the amount of freight that you can move to the maximum amount of people with the minimum amount of distance. So that's why you see like these big air hubs for these logistics companies located in that region of the country. Uh, and it's, it's tilted East as opposed to the geographical center of the country. Cause that the population density of the U S is tilted towards the East coast. Um, but anyways, uh, on that logistical note, like that's why there's an enormous amount of freight that moves through, you know, the, the like mid-Appalachian towards the Midwest region. And so you have a huge amount of workers at these air hubs, uh, not just for Amazon, but for UPS, and in this case, for DHL. Because this past week, 98% of the 1,100 Teamster ramp workers at DHL's air transport facility at KCVG voted to authorize a strike. And that's this hub is actually DHL's largest facility in the U.S. And a strike shutting down their ramp operations may have major na- nationwide impact during the peak holiday season. Because uh, that's a- another thing to point out about the timing of this this strike is that it's like right now, as we speak, is by far the busiest point and thus most profitable point for all of these logistics companies for the whole year. Yeah, always got to put pressure on right at the most important moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the DHL workers voted to unionize with the Teamsters back in April, and the union has been bargaining with DHL for a first contract for over six months. The unions filed ULPs against DHL for retaliating against pro-union workers, which like, you re- like you realize these are these this is the Teamsters like that's not going to work. <laughs> like, I don't understand companies that do this, but anyway, uh, so like they've been retaliating against pro union workers. And so the union's fighting back and they've called out the company for refusing to schedule further bargaining sessions beyond this past Thursday. And so with DHL continuing to refuse on key issues, members decided that they needed to kick things up with a strike threat to show that the company, that they're serious. And so we had heard from Bill Davis, the president of Teamsters Local 100, which represents these workers, saying, quote, our members are fed up with the company's stall tactics. The members have voted and are prepared to walk. DHL will not get away with denying working people good wages and safe conditions on the job. If DHL continues to drag their feet, they will inflict a work stoppage on themselves. Hell yeah. And then again, with the Teamsters coming out there with that similar rhetoric of, you know, this is the company doing it to themselves. Mm-hmm. No, and they're 100% right. And, you know, they weren't bluffing because uh, on Thursday, December 7th, DHL's intransigence forced a work stoppage, just like the union said. Workers hit the picket line after DHL refused to stop attacking workers' organizing rights. Uh, Gina Kemp, a ramp worker for DHL, said, quote, We were forced to go on strike to put an end to DHL's illegal anti-union behavior. This company's repeated acts of disrespect from the tarmac where we work to the bargaining table leave me and my coworkers with no choice but to withhold our labor, end quote. 
And so in response to this, DHL put out like like they 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 mentioned in like a couple of the news articles I read, their like response to the media, they're like, Oh no, it's fine. We have a plan to deal with this. We'll continue services uninterrupted. <laughs> I'm just like Bold claim. <laughs> we'll see how that works out because it's like your largest hub is this airport. It's 1,100 ramp workers. Like, it, do you know how to move freight around in the middle of an like a an airport safely without getting run over or sucked into a jet engine? And you're not going to like find anybody off the street to do that. And even if their plan to continue their their operations is relying on diverting their freight to smaller air hubs, that's not. They're still dumping the workload of 1,100 people onto the rest of their staff. And and to a less efficient location to move that work. So even if they're higher scabs, even if they try diverting the freight, that's not going to change the fact that this is going to have a major impact on their peak operating conditions that they already can barely keep up with as is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I it's it, just absurd that they really are the the hubris really. Yeah, and and you know, as the workers said, this all could have been avoided if DHL would just respect their workers and agree to a fair contract. And so, until they do, the workers at CVG will just have to demonstrate how important they are by withholding their labor during this critical period. That's right. Well, and to move to our next story about withholding your labor, I have to do a shout out to a listener, patron, and member of the local that this story is actually about who brought Ooh. us this story. Uh, at Columbia College in Chicago, a par- the part-time or adjunct faculty have been on strike since October 30th and have broken the record for the longest adjunct faculty strike in higher education, surpassing the new school strike of 25 days with hitting 41 days as of this recording on Saturday. This strike came to pass by an 88% margin following the unilateral decision by the university's administration to eliminate 370 courses and increase class sizes just just across the board without negotiating with the union. And this cutting of courses culminated in a 20% reduction of course offerings across the board. By spring, class sizes are expected to increase by 45%, which is an absurd intensification of labor, and not only just of the working conditions for the faculty, but in a decrease in time and the quality of the education for the students themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's like... (laughs) That would be a ridiculous move to make with a non-union workforce, but like the idea that you would do this, that you're essentially like increasing everybody's class size by half cramming way more work onto the same amount of people like and that's not a a change to status quo that's not a unilateral modification of the agreements like in their labor contract like it it obviously is yeah absolutely well and i mean speaking to this lynn a member of the columbia college faculty union said quote they went from 14 sections of art history, including one remote, to five. They're doubling, and they're doubling students. So it's capped at 22 students now, and it's, a, and it's all full. And now they're moving to 44 or 45 students, end quote. 
Which is like, that's just such a, like, I know that, you know, sometimes they'll have those like freshman level intro courses where it's just like some gen ed that everybody has to take like English 101 or like uh, chemistry 101 or something like that, where the, where class, they'll cram like 200 students into a lecture hall. And then they'll just be like, oh, we'll do this by having like two or three TAs grade everything. But it's just like that, that never actually creates a good learning environment. And now you're taking a, a much less like introductory subject where you're kind of just like reinforcing like what should have been taught in high school in a lot of cases with those early gen eds and just being like, yeah, what if we just took all the classes and made them double the size so that the teachers have less than half the time to actually spend engaging with the, the students that won't affect the, the actual education at all or the working conditions for any of these people. That'll be fine. Right. It's just, it's absurd. Well, and I mean like they're, and they're not even like one of the things that the administration is claiming is that they have to cut all of these classes because they're going through a financial (sighs) crisis. But at the same time, they've refused to show the union where all the money is going because I mean, Mm, where's all this tuition money going? I mean, but because of this, the union themselves have had to rely on nonprofit disclosure forms that show things like President Kwang Woo Kim getting a $252,000 bonus on top of the million dollar salary over the 2022 fiscal year. This is the thing with like uh, the neoliberalization of of academic institutions is that all of their budgets every year are now intentionally like, oh, I have a fiscal crisis. What am I going to do? I have to cut all of these classes that I am ideologically biased against because I don't think they produce enough profit for U.S. monopoly capitalists. And so, like, I have to create a justification by making a budget that's like uh, classroom supplies, $5, and then it's like teacher salaries, $2, and then it's just administrative salaries, $20 million. I can't understand why I have a financial crisis clearly (laughs) i have to cut the teachers stuff and and also cut class sizes down while also increasing enrollment like it's yeah let's uh it's 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 like yeah let no let's let's just arbitrarily cut the number of art classes i have from five from 14 to five and and just make each teacher grade 50 things that they can spend five seconds looking at and can't actually give a good attention to. That's definitely going to produce good results and produce people who are going to want to trumpet how like everyone should come to this school because they give such a good education. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what would be a really great decision is if we just limited our capacity to do the thing that we're supposed to do. Yeah, and instead <laughs> focused all of our money on just hiring people from consultancy and marketing firms to tell us how to like raise tuition without lowering enrollment and spend more of this money on like real estate acquisition and like investments in head funds and shit so yeah. that the like board and regents and stuff can all make more money which has nothing to do with the actual purpose of educating people <laughs> yeah so and instead of negotiating with the union the administration has gone to threatening students with failing grades if they do not return while the while these uh, adjunct faculty are on strike, since, wild move. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, since these are far, since these are part time faculty, the full time faculty faculty are being told to pick up all of mm. the slack during the strike. This is basically impossible because uh, the workers on strike account for seventy two percent of all yep. of the faculty at the school. Like. It, it's a huge number who are, are these adjunct faculty who work part-time, and many classes are not even being held, or students are being told to watch YouTube videos in lieu of actual classroom activities and discussions. 
But if you don't watch your YouTube videos, we're going to give you an F. <laughs> I Yeah, truly absurd. Uh, and these issues, along with others, like the strike at the University of Michigan, are putting the accreditation of the school in jeopardy. And I mean, the yeah. law, there's a law firm, Stephen Zoris LLP, which is currently in discussions with students and parents in regards to a class action lawsuit against the school surrounding these issues. I mean, it makes sense. You know, the, the, cool, the school is saying, look, if you give us money, we'll give you an education. And now they're like, ha, psych. <laughs> just keep giving us the money. We're not going to do the education part. We're going to fire a bunch of teachers and make everybody work harder and give you a way less good education than you would have otherwise gotten. But that's not fraud because um, don't ask how that's not fraud. No, but I mean, like, I guess <laughs> if we want to say the word fraud, I mean, we should actually look at some of the things that the union themselves uh, un- uncovered through some of their investigations because they actually found a history of mismanagement and corruption among some of the school's administrative leadership. Truly and some shocking. of these cases also highlight the kind of people that end up in the administration of colleges in the first place. So I've got a small list here with uh, Provost Mancella David, who was fired from her previous job at FAMU for receiving a $15,000 bonus from taxpayer funds and was the center of numerous public complaints about her treatment of faculty. So, oh, cool. already an abusive boss. And then we have uh, John Holmes, the chairman of the board of trustees and CEO of the AAR Corp, an aviation maintenance company and Department of Defense contractor who was hit with $11 million in DOJ fines for failing to maintain military helicopters in Iraq. Uh, I mean, I don't care that you are failing to main, like maintain military things, but this just shows the kind of people who are in power mm-hmm. at these at these colleges. Yeah, I mean, like I was talking about like fraud in a somewhat abstract way, but this is just like they're just like collected. Like, okay, who's who has a history of of stealing? Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's hire them. <laughs> yeah, and I mean Richard Poulton, CEO of Veradime, previously Practice Fusion, had a $145 million settlement agreement with the DOJ for lack of compliance with the anti-kickback statute and HIPAA regulations. So just more like military-related motherfuckers who also hate workers. And in addition, the union said that they have been shocked to learn that the board of trustee, president cabinet, and provost claim that they're... that claim to keep no minutes from any of their meetings and apparently there is no record of any recent administrative meetings which means that on top of <laughs> there being a bunch of ghouls in these in these positions they're not even doing their job so i looked up that veridime company that that this richard Poulton is the ceo of, and there's a quote from the settlement that this this 145 million dollar settlement that they were forced to pay uh this is a quote from the attorney, uh, U.S. attorney for the District of Vermont saying, quote, so the company used to be called Practice, like you said, Practice Fusion. So that's what he's referring to here, saying, Practice Fusion's conduct is abhorrent. During the height of the opioid crisis, the company took a million-dollar kickback to allow an opioid company to inject itself in the sacred doctor-patient relationship so that it could peddle even more of its highly addictive and dangerous opioids. So very uh, cool that that's who you decided to to like put on your administrative board. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, just just truly the the ghouls of ghouls who are yeah. who are like deciding that these adjunct faculty uh shouldn't have good working conditions. Yeah, I'm also like noting a, a distinct lack of like educators <laughs> involved in the administration of a educational facility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it clearly is just like, oh, you ran a business good, then you'll run a public institution right. good. Yeah, so this this shit is ridiculous. So, I mean, all our solidarity with the the adjunct faculty, uh you your strike is just uh this is cuz this is this is all sort of shit we've seen happening all over the place. I think it was like West Virginia University, I think is like the latest big one where like these like neoliberal consultancy firm comes in to tell the administrators yeah, all right. So in order to maintain your ridiculously lavish salaries, we're going to have to start making some real cuts. And clearly what that means, less classes. <laughs> so like, yeah, we got to stop this shit. And it's like worker unions fighting back that is going to be like our strongest way to do that. So like these sorts of strikes are really important. And so definitely encourage folks, you know, if you're in the Chicago area, uh, definitely uh, if you can go out to these folks on the picket line, show your support. Uh, we definitely encourage that. Yeah, and I mean, in another college-level labor struggle, faculty across the four largest of the 23 California State University System's campuses started a series of one-day strikes on Monday the 4th. They rotated locations for the one-day strikes to cover a lot of ground over the first weeks of their action. Faculty at Cal Poly Pomona walked out Monday. Workers at San Francisco State struck Tuesday. Cal State Los Angeles went out on Wednesday, and Sacramento State went out on Thursday. The union is demanding an immediate 12% raise to make up for wages that haven't kept up for a cost of living, which is a notorious issue in California, and they, as well as an increase, as well as a protest against increased workloads that many of the union have faced. I, I mean, the university has offered only 5% raises on the regular schedule with no immediate raises. I mean, clearly not really bargaining in good faith there. I just love that, like, their response is, how much could inflation be? 5%? (laughs) Right? And, I mean, they're also fighting for for caps on class sizes, an increase in parental leave, breastfeeding stations, more inclusive bathrooms, a raise of the salary floor from $54,000 to $64,000, and a couple other things. And I think that some of these, these, this list also highlights their commitment to better conditions for everyone on the mm-hmm. campus the, it, like it just is so clear every single time teachers fight for something that they are doing it for not only themselves but for everyone who is in the learning facility yeah well and that's the thing i know they're not referred to this way but it's why these sorts of strikes are kind of inherently political strikes uh because like it's it it's an inherent recognition that like the struggle goes beyond just like the individual working conditions of like the individual members of the union, like that this affects the whole community. And that's, you know, one of the things why we've seen such really great things like the Brookline teachers demanding housing for homeless students and, uh, you know, other teachers unions invest like forcing more investment in, you know, mental health for first care for students and all these other things that don't have any impact, you know, necessarily directly 
on the working conditions of the teachers themselves, but they understand it's like, this is what the community needs and we're organized. And so we need to be the ones pushing for that. And that's, I mean, already, you know, we should be showing solidarity with all our, our, our stri fellow striking workers. But if you wanted an extra reason, <laughs> I mean, for teachers in particular, like these are usually strikes to benefit, like again, everybody. Yeah. And I mean, like, also, I mean, let's just extend everybody in this current situation because Teamsters Local 2010, which represents uh, 1,100 electricians, plumbers, and other skilled tradespeople working for Cal State, struck alongside the faculty as their negotiations with the college have also stalled. Hell yeah. And while these actions are starting small, the union at, you know, the Cal University system do plan to escalate if their demands are not met. They have certainly have a lot of potential for large actions as the California Faculty Association represents 29,000 workers across those 23 different campuses. Nice. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing. It's like even when you have – because like whether it's a state college, whether it's a, a, a private one, again, it's this like – there's this complete disconnect between the administration, even ones who aren't like in the case of uh, – uh, columbia college in chicago even when you don't have a bunch of just random fraudsters as your board there's this huge disconnect between the understanding of the the very simple statement that we see at so many teacher strikes which is teachers working conditions are students learning conditions and it's not just a nice phrase it's literally true mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it's like the purpose of these institutions nominally is to educate the students. And so, you know, where we have, we look at sometimes the administration deciding, no, the purpose of these institutions is to generate higher administrative salaries or or to generate funds via a real estate scheme or stuff like that. And that's where, you know, we see the role of the teachers in, in actually being the only ones truly committed to putting themselves on the line to be like, no, this is supposed to be a school and we need to actually run it like one. Yeah. And so solidarity with all of these academic folks who are out there on strike. Keep it up, and we are uh, hoping that you get everything that you demand. Yeah, no, 100%. And so earlier we alluded a couple of times to the ways in which the UAW's historic stand-up strike that, that just uh, won you know, against all of the big three automakers for the first time in one strike – that there have already been cascading impacts on workers being inspired by that victory to join unions to organize their own. Uh, and so this week we have the very first official uh, announced major step forward in the Stand Up 2.0 organizing campaign, which we discussed the launch of recently, where the UAW you know, announced an extremely ambitious plan to organize all the non-union automakers in the U.S. And so this Thursday, we got the first big bargaining unit announcement of that plan already just a, a week in, where on December 7th, this Thursday, the UAW announced that they've already signed up over a thousand workers at VW's Chattanooga factory in Tennessee, which is over 30% of the workers at the plant, which as we discussed when we talked about the launch of this drive, is that like first threshold in the, the UAW strategy, where at 30%, they officially go public. And they're like, we've got a union drive. We're pushing here. We're going to build for an election. We're going to unionize this plant. And getting 1,000 workers, again, over 30% of the plant in a week, <laughs> like 
that's wild. <laughs> like, yeah, because, very impressive. Yeah, and so like this is the first non-union auto plant to announce their drive officially, but of course the union has said that they've got organizing committees at many other companies, including Tesla and Toyota, and have had thousands of non-union auto workers across the country reach out about organizing their workplace. And one of the things, though, that's also big about this specific facility is that this is the third UAW drive at the Chattanooga plant in just the last decade, with prior votes in 2014 and 2019 being defeated by an extremely narrow margin, fewer than 100 votes in each of those elections the union lost by. But the union was operating under very different conditions in those elections. The admin caucus was in charge, and mostly, unfortunately, what they had to show for like you know their recent record under the admin caucus is you know marginal contracts. Like yeah, it's better than not having a union, but they still hadn't you know really fought back the concessions given up in two thousand eight. And additionally, but- we have to, to give a little bit of credit to the big labor wave that's been going through mm-hmm. and the consciousness oh, that's been building. So I mean, if really if if even if they were just trying to get that extra hundred and fifty or two hundred votes, that's happening kind of out of the consciousness of reality and I mean, what I feel like we're going to see here is actually a much larger margin, mostly due to the extremely successful efforts by the UAW Reform Caucus. Right. And by now showing that it's like because, you know, one of the things that was a very powerful anti-union move against the UAW, unfortunately, by many companies was to point to just, hey, look, some of these people for the admin caucus went to jail for corruption because they were literally like stealing from union funds. And so like, yeah, you can make the argument, you can be like, look, yes, that's bad, but there's a movement to reform that. Now, though, you can just point to the results. You can say, hey, yes, that did happen in the past, and that's why we changed our union at the UAW. That's why the members took control with one member, one vote, and now the membership can hold the leadership to account. And after the very first one member, one vote election, they just won the biggest contracts in a quarter century. So, like, the pitch for the UAW is, like, it would have been better for the workers at the plant to unionize before, even under the admin caucus. But the sales pitch now is so much easier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think clearly the example set by the, the workers in the UAW in their victorious strike against the big three and their victorious effort to reform their own union, to take it back and to really make it a democratic model, has inspired thousands of workers at auto plants all over the U.S. to want the same thing for themselves. And I think the UAW, you know, summed this whole thing up uh, clearly itself in the video that they made announcing their progress at VW, where they said, quote, the question isn't, why do GM workers in Spring Hill or Ford workers in Louisville get a better life? The question is, why don't we? That's right. And honestly, the UAW, their new like video producers, just absolutely impressive. Oh, like, yeah. Very impressive. I, this is something that unions need to learn from because those videos get around. Yeah, the UAW media team's been absolutely killing it. Like, you know, Jonah Furman, who is, I believe, their comms director now, has just been doing a fantastic job like during and since the strike. So, yeah, shout outs. Shout outs to the UAW media team. Uh, really, really just killing it with all these videos lately. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in our last story for this episode, we get to move again to Kentucky in Louisville. Which it's the big Kentucky episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been the site of numerous union efforts over the past few years, with workers in many different in- industries joining the upsurge of the labor movement. One of those new unions was formed by workers at the local coffee chain Synergos, where workers were inspired by the explosive growth of the Starbucks Workers United movement. But, I mean, like so many other successful union drives, winning their election was just the first part of a major fight, and winning their first contract was another, obviously. Well, workers at Synergo's five locations in Louisville who had joined 32BJ SEIU almost a year ago back in January after their negotiations lasted nearly a year without reaching a deal, workers were forced to escalate and launch a strike on Black Friday. And this Monday, December 4th, they announced that they have a deal for a new contract and ended their strike, which, hell yeah, I'm so excited for some of these coffee chains to really Mm -hmm. be getting their contracts after these major fights over these past couple years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's, one of the things we talk about so much is that, like, we get a huge boost by all of these union victories but the you know because of how fucked up US labor law is it's really shown over the past few years especially you know with, with the explosive growth of, of movements like Starbucks Workers United uh, where we've seen that really that 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 fight for the contract can be just as much of a challenge if not sometimes even more of a challenge and so to not only see these workers you know win after a year of negotiating but to just take it to that level of like look we've been bargaining at this forever. If you guys are not going to be serious about this, we're going to have to take it up a notch. And clearly the, 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 the owners being like, no, we can, we can beat a strike and just be like, okay, try. And yeah, no, <laughs> and, and just being like, no, you can't. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that these, this is also just like a major stepping stone for the labor movement to get into things like organizing restaurants and other retail environments mm-hmm. because this is really that kind of gray middle area of between like fast food and like you know an established food place or or something like that yeah, your and, fast casual situation exactly and i find that th- like this movement to get people into unions here is the major stepping stone to what are the jobs that are the some of the most exploitative in the united states you know i guess maybe outside of certain uh you know uh farming labor you know there is there is these these restaurant workers who very consistently have like face wage theft and other sorts of things the reason why there's the union of southern service workers Mm -hmm. and i mean this is the sort of thing that's going to be a boon for them as well especially you know in kentucky which is you know in the beginnings of the south you know i i just i it really really makes me feel very good about about the movement in general But as per reporting from local news station WHAS, the new deal includes a 20% increase to the unlivable starting wage of $8.25 an hour, which was too low even with tips, to the still kind of low but better $10 an hour. The contract also removes wage caps on veteran workers who uh, were basically forced to have their wages low despite years and years of experience. The deal includes just cause job protections, paid sick leave, child leave, and bereavement leave for the first time. I mean, those are huge wins Mm -hmm. for these workers. And I mean, the workers will vote this week on whether or not to accept the deal. And I mean, 
you know, it definitely is up to them because in these cases, I feel like there is not as much of a precedent set about like what is the the you know the real victory of a contract because this is I mean these are significant gains and but like who knows maybe those workers are like no we're so strong yeah but I mean still just even getting to this point with the first contract is is a, a huge step forward and so congratulations and solidarity with uh with all these workers at Synergos absolutely and uh so now it's time to talk about photos that's right yeah we gotta get to, we gotta do our meme review as we always do and i i just uh some of these i i have pulled from slightly earlier in the season and some of them are actually a little early for the season so we have a, a kind of the opposite of timeliness it's like somewhere between timely except for this first one which We're I gonna just, make Christmas jokes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which I mean, this first one I just really, really love. Um, uh, so, so this is Steve Harvey with one of the the guests on the Family Feud show, who has this guy who like puts his hand on his shoulder, and Steve Harvey's given this downward glance, like, "Why are you touching me?" And the caption on this one is, "When your manager tries to act nice to you in front of the customers." And I well, the guy's also got the most like awkward giant grin like uh-huh. and i know part of it is that it's like it's the freeze frame but it's like he looks so corny uh-huh i just like i think of like i don't know i've worked retail and just be like oh yeah and they're just they're one of our most knowledgeable people you can trust them and i'm just like why are you touching me well, it also makes me think of like, you know, those when they have like the the like Starbucks like regional manager who will come down and like work work a shift for like an hour and they're just getting in everyone's way and making everything worse. Yeah, obviously like I, and like putting on that smiling face. I just I also it just like so many of my jobs are like this and just just managers need to stop. <laughs> it's true we just gotta just just the it's time to stop guy that's but just right. for managers. <laughs> so uh the next one very very simple one we've got the uh the the front cover of how the grinch stole christmas but it's been changed to an unfortunately very topical how the rent stole christmas because uh that's right folks despite the fact that every single news organization is telling us that, oh, actually, the economy is amazing and it's great. And everybody who doesn't think it's great and talk about how amazing Bidenomics is, is clearly uh, uh, hates democracy. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I mean, like, this is this is just something we got to go back to the classic line. The rent is too damn high. It is, and it always has been, because rent is extortion. <laughs> That's right. And then also, sticking with our Christmas memes, we've got a, a Christmas Carol style, uh, like play still with uh, Jacob Marley and all of his chains, you know, uh, looking down at Ebenezer Scrooge, and uh, Jacob Marley is like, mind your wicked ways or face the consequences, and then... <laughs> Uh, uh, Scrooge is like, this is cancel culture. I'm being canceled by the wokes. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Like that stuff had like turned down a little bit, but good lord, has it like surged back? Where you have the people just being like, uh, criticizing me for uh, supporting genocide is actually uh, cancel culture. Like, and and it and and it shows that you have no tolerance for different views. And I'm just like. Yeah, I don't have tolerance for that view. And yeah. <laughs> it's like like yeah, you're right, I don't. And I'm proud of that. 
to be frank. <laughs> yeah, obviously that that kind of liberal idea that oh, we just need to accept everybody's strange opinions or or whatever and it's like no. But but this is also like and I, I mean to get into the less like political analysis side of this this is also just something i see on social media all the time where somebody will do something like it's just either obviously like factually wrong or just very stupid and and they'll post about it and then somebody will nicely in good faith Mm -hmm. be like hey i actually think that's like wrong and the way to do it is this and you have all these people who they'll get super defensive and then you have all these people coming to be like speak your truth like don't let anybody like tell you you're wrong it's like but they're factually wrong like this isn't just like it's not like I like this new hairstyle I gave that some people think looks dumb. It's like, well, yeah, that's an aesthetic choice. So sure. Like that's not like there's, but it's like, they're just like, I raised my, I doubled my tenant's rent and now I can buy a new pool and people were mean to me. It's like, yeah, cause you're being a piece of shit. Like it's, it, this isn't like something that's just up for like any interpretation. Like there's a clear perspective here (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and i mean even when it comes to the left you know i can we could see some of that defensiveness as well which i actually luckily we don't really see in our discord we have actually a lot of really good faith discussions going on there uh but i mean really if you see critique just take a second to be like you know what let's actually look at the situation think that you know that's not a huge request yeah but anyways (laughs) I mean, it's, yeah, the whole thing, I still can't believe that people use the term cancel culture seriously when we've already seen that the only actual cancel culture is against people supporting Palestine. It's the only real version of that. that people exists. are getting fired. People are getting kicked. They, they're, the campus fucking, yeah, no. we Look at the entire career of Norman Finkelstein for proof of this. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Now, but, to get back to the silly memes. <laughs> so the next one that we've got here. I mean, this is just a funny picture. So, like, you can kind of put any caption on this. So, this is a, this is this is a, this is from the the one of the I don't know which trial because there have been multiple lawsuits against Alex Jones, uh, who by the way still has money and is still going on shows. If you ever really wanted to know if like even the civil legal system in the U.S. actually has teeth against rich people whose yeah, message. Yeah, speaking of cancel culture, this guy was supposedly canceled, but yet is doing just fucking fine. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, yeah, tell me how you've been canceled. But like, yeah. So it's it's it's. Alex Jones looking shocked, looking back into the courtroom, uh, looking confused. And then it's when the deep state, my family, leaks classified information, my birthday, to their known informant, the waitress, and they all approach us clapping. (laughs) Which I, I mean, like, I, I mean, I was, I haven't been in a restaurant uh, that was, especially one that does this sort of thing in years at this point. But I mean, (laughs) Just just knowing that fear of like, oh God, it's my birthday. I hear the clapping. <laughs> and then just like the terror and that and Alex Jones's face of I think that that's when he uh when someone when he like said there oh there's no evidence of this or something like that and someone's like, Oh wait, no, this is the evidence and he's like, Oh fuck. Uh and and yeah, just uh also just the the comparison between like the deep state, classified information, known informant, you know, the kind of like, you know, Alex Jonesy kind of kind of talk. Or I mean just I, I let's say parapolitics style talk but like connecting it then just to singing waitresses and such and yeah wait staff well, and so 
for our last one, this is great because this is like, I mean, this isn't even have to be a meme. This is just a vision of a society where we appropriately honor heroes of labor. That's because right. Because this is a days in sign that, that reads, you know, one of the ones where you put the, the, the little plastic letters up there to say whatever. And it just reads, we remember all who have served hot breakfast. That's right. That's right. <laughs> salute. Red salute to all of those who served hot breakfast. That's right. And- hey, look. You know, the we remember all who have served, boring, lame, supporting imperialism. We remember all who have served hot breakfast, great, pro-worker, and also encourages, you know, more hot breakfast. That's right. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think when I was prefacing the uh, memes earlier, this was the one that I was thinking of is like, this one is late because I think that this is from whatever that military holiday was a couple weeks ago. But I, I just day. wanted to bring it in. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's great. We should have more of this, but like sincere and not just an accidental meme. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon because it is the only way that we get any funding for doing this show. We literally could not do this without the support of our patrons. And if you would like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You get access to all of our bonus content, which there are like 60 overtime episodes. There is a ton of other episodes that like there's more there's just just uh there's movie time episodes if you're really into labor movies and want to hear what we have to say about it and also if you want to help us out a little bit more you can write us a review anywhere preferably on places where people find their podcasts but again anywhere follow us in all the places the links are at workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always Labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. 